is, and I'm a covenant partner here, and I have the honor of reading scripture this morning. So this morning, we're going to continue our worship by studying Acts chapter 22, verses 1 through 11, discovering how we respond to God's grace through stewarding our story. God has chosen to further his story of redemption through the stories of those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. God wants to use your story for his glory. Please join me in reading Acts chapter 22, verses 1 through 11. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear witness. From them I have received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished." As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers... Flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Thank you, Danielle. Uh, good morning, church. It's good to worship with you this morning. I, uh, I will apologize. Starting off, we're starting our stewardship season, and we had a great video uh, that was made. Muffin and Morris Camp made it, and it was going to be shown. And somehow I got lost in transition from our stewardship team here. Unlike last week, we had technical difficulties. This week, we just had a total no-show, right? Bob looked everywhere in all folders. We couldn't find it. But we are, will not deprive you of that video. You are going to get to see it at some point because it was well done, well made. And you will hear a lot about the opportunities that we have as a congregation to steward what the Lord has entrusted to us in a way that's given witness. We're very grateful for our team uh, that has led us in this. And you'll be able to have these brochures mailed to your home. Uh, and you'll see them laying around. For now, we are going to look at Acts chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, please open it on your phone. Uh, or get one. We have tons of them right over there. Uh, We're going to unpack this passage and talk about the value that God gives to your story. It is true uh, that stewardship season is about grace, knowing God's grace, respond to his grace, 
in living for his glory, grace to glory. And today we're going to see how central to that is people who know Christ stewarding their story. That God furthers his story of redemption through people who have been redeemed by his blood, saved by his grace, and know how to share their story, to be a witness. So I want to start off by sharing with you a little bit about the story of this violin. This violin can be worth nothing. Or this violin can be worth everything. If I bought this at a prop shop in 1993, after I bought my Michael Jackson parachute pants and just threw this in with it, uh, then this violin would be worth nothing. But if the story of this violin is true, then this violin has tremendous significance and worth and value. So the story in my family uh, is that my great-great-grandmother brought this violin over from Europe when her family immigrated from Europe to America. And my great-great-grandmother came from a okay to do family there and she was brought up playing the instruments of the day and her family got her the nicest instrument that was available is this worth something it turns out that my grandmother was in europe in the early 1700s the same time that a guy named antonio stradivari was making violins now here's the deal he made the best stringed instruments ever in the history of the world. And he has 650 violins that he made that have survived. And these violins lead the most famous orchestras in the world because they've been refurbished. And you can tell by a sticker that is inside of every violin when it was made in history and who crafted it. So my wife and I discover the story. You raising your hand? Do you have something to say? Yes, I know. You're spoiling it. <laughs> Come on. All right. So thanks a lot. Let's just close in prayer. I was trying to build up to this climax. All right. Okay, so... Yeah. Yes. I know. Thank you. So it turns out we have. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. We did our research. We took it to an appraiser who looked at it, who studied it, who traced the history of it. And he said, if you spend money refurbishing this violin, it would still not be worth anything. Because it wasn't made by, it's not a Stradivarius, it's not made by his apprentice, but someone that worked in that exact same time that was trying to make money by making violins that look like Stradivariuses. It would be the equivalent of if you got like a Prada purse from New York, and it's not really a Prada purse, right? So I just kind of devastated a few ladies in Ben McCaleb. So <laughs> here's the point. The story of something or someone 
actually adds tremendous significance in weight, in value. And this, because it was actually brought by my family from Europe as they immigrated here, it is worth far more than any monetary value. Not enough to refurbish and play, but enough to hang on our wall so we can tell the story. How much more for people that have been made by God in his image and renewed and restored by his love and through his work. The value of your story is intended to be music to the world, refurbished by his grace so that the story of God's glory can be furthered. Here's the problem. Many of us live... uh, too comfortably in the South Texas, Southern culture. It's this bless your heart culture. Oh, bless your heart, right? So we are not honest with our brokenness. We pretend like everything's perfect. We're like, man, I never needed to be refurbished by grace. I never needed God's love to restore me, man. I'm great. Everything's fine. Have you been there? But the beauty of the gospel is it frees us to see exactly what we studied last week. That the prisons of our life, the pain and the problems are actually platforms for proclamation. Because it's in those places of dependency where God's grace and his sovereign love shines the brightest. And so we're going to see how that is true in the story of Paul And how it can be and should be true in everyone's story who knows Jesus as Lord and Savior. Will you pray with me before we unpack God's word? Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you that your grace refurbishes us, that your work makes us new. We thank you that we can start fresh in you. And we just confess that we have fallen victim to a cultural current that doesn't want to acknowledge that we're sinners in need of saving. It doesn't want to acknowledge that we're, we struggle and we suffer and we need the sufficiency of your grace and that your power is made perfect in our weakness. And I ask that today as we study your word, that your spirit would explode us, that we would not only feel the freedom that comes in the gospel, but the burden of the opportunity to further your glory through sharing our story, stewarding all of our life that might be music to the ears of those in our lives that we work with and live with. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. All right, we're going to start here at verse 21, and we're going to unpack this in a pretty succinct way. Uh, but Paul says this. He starts off, he's defending himself. He, 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 uh, we know his testimony of what happened to him. He was saved in Acts chapter 9. And then there's two other places in Acts where he actually gives his testimony. This is one of them. He starts off in verse 1. He says, hear the defense that I now make for you. And this is important to put up, point out because the word that he uses for defense is actually apologia. It's the word we get apologetics from. Uh, but more significantly, it's the same word that Peter uses when he's writing to the early church when he tells Christians, all Christians, that we should be ready to give a defense for the hope we have. Here's the verse that says that. Peter says, In your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense. Paul is, Peter's writing to the church using the same word as Paul, to anyone who asks for the reasons of the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So what we see is that 
The invitation is for all Christians who know God's grace and want to live for his glory. This isn't an optional thing uh, in our discipleship. We don't say, and we're grateful that there are people in our church that do have the gift of evangelism, but we don't say that sharing our faith only belongs to those folks. It's every Christian's responsibility to steward our story, even our struggles, even our sin, and our suffering from the past, and to use it as a platform to display God's faithfulness, his goodness, his character, and his mercy to save us, all of us are called to do that. Now, Paul had a mission statement. And his mission statement is seen really clearly in Acts chapter 20. And this verse right here is where Paul just says, this is why he exists. He says, I don't account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only that I may finish the race, uh, the course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace of God. His whole passion, his whole call, his whole life was centered on this ministry to testify to the grace of God. How did he do it? He did it through sharing his story. This is what we're going to talk about. And and I'm going to go ahead and start off by telling you this. I'm not going to give you too many personal examples. If you're a guy in here and you want to come to our men's dinner next Sunday night, I will use the same paradigm and I will talk about my sin struggles in the past with power in sexuality and talk about how Christ has redeemed those for his glory. But today we're going to keep it rooted in Paul's story. All right. Uh, Jesus redeemed. So the first thing that we see in verse three is that how does Paul share a story? He does so by talking about the story of his life. Look what he says. I'm a Jew born in Tarsus and Sicilia. I've been brought up in, in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. According to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, I was zealous of God as all of you are to this day. Paul shares a story of his life and he makes a personal connection uh, with the people he's talking to. On the one hand, he speaks in Hebrew. We see that in verse two, he's using their language. But on the other hand, he's just giving the narrative of his life. And to this point, all of us can succeed without any fear, right? You can easily share the story of your life, where you're from, school you went to, uh, your family and all this stuff. That's really easy. And Paul jumps into, in verses four to five, the substance of his need. The substance of his need, listen to this. Uh, he says, I'm pers- I persecuted the way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. Okay, all right. I'm not encouraging you to go to the deep end like my man Paul did really quickly. If you pay attention to what he is saying, he's saying he's confessing to murder. I persecuted the way, that is Christians, to death. And then he's like, I'll see your uh, horrible sin and raise you putting in chains women. <laughs> like this guy is being really, really honest with his struggles, really honest with his sin. He's not hiding. And that's because he understands the way that the, the honesty with our sin magnifies God's sovereign grace. Paul is so extreme in this that in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he calls himself the chief of sinners, the head sinners, the worst of the worst. And we'll read that passage in a minute. But he's honest with the substance of his need. And he does it with specificity. Sharing our story, stewarding our struggles with specificity will magnify the salvation that we receive in Christ and further God's story of glory centered on his grace. 
we do so with specificity in humility. Because it's only God's grace that saves. In that, with Paul, is the launching ramp to talk about the solution in a Savior. Now listen to what Paul does in verses 6 to 9. He says, As I was on my way, I drew near to Damascus about noon. This is a historic moment. About noon. This happened in history. About noon on a road. This is real life, man. Real life. That the sinner of sinners, the murderer and the binder of women had a personal and climactic encounter with Jesus Christ. A great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying, and we know from Acts 9 that voice is Jesus. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. It's historic. It's climactic. It's personal. Do you know how astounding it is that the grace of God pursues the enemies of God and that he knows the names of his enemies and that he's calling his enemies from among their ranks into his family? It's what is celebrated in Psalm 110. It's what's articulated in Ephesians chapter 2 and Romans 8 chapter 5. While you were enemies, God made his love known. That Christ gave his life for you. It is historical. It is climactic. It is personal. And it's a catalyst to total transformation. Not just for you, but for the whole world. And if we are a people that know Christ personally and have been forgiving in the worst ways and we have the only hope in the world and we don't tell people about it, that's the most selfish thing you can imagine. I don't need to illustrate it. It's just true. If you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, the one who took your shame, who forgives your sin, who moved you from death to life, who moved you from an enemy to a child, and we tell no one, and we show no one, and we share with no one because I'm afraid of what they're going to say. I'm afraid of what's going to happen. I'm afraid I might lose a deal. I'm afraid it might bring fracturing in a relationship. Then our identity is off. When we have a primary identity as a child of God, as a new creation in Christ, as an ambassador for Christ, then the opportunities we look for are to proclaim the beneficial rule and reign of King Jesus who rose from the grave and has resurrected me. Yeah, that's stewarding our story. Everyone, everywhere. And I'm telling you, Jesus changes things. Jesus moves dead people to life. Jesus takes people out of darkness and he brings them to light. Jesus forgives the chief of sinners. And he wants to use us to further that story of glory. So Paul does this all through his ministry. We see it in Philippians 3. We have time now to really just look to what happens next for Paul. who turned Saul, who turned to Paul, verses 10 and 11. Uh, Paul says, What shall I do, Lord? What shall I do? And Jesus says, here's what I want you to do. I've met you personally, historically. I've changed your life. I want you to go to church like a couple times a month, okay? And then 
I want you to make sure that you pray sometimes and you, you read the Bible, at least like get some, like a Bible verse you can put on your wall. Is that what Jesus told Paul to do? No, nah, man. It totally changed his life. Paul had a totally new paradigm. I'm not saved by my own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. I'm saved by faith alone. That his passion for his own religious fervor turned into what Bobby said in Sunday school, compassion for others. And he had a new people. He actually went to Damascus, the same people he was going to kill. They became his family. (laughs) And he had a completely new priority. And that new priority was the mission that God gave him. He had a new paradigm, a new people, a new practice, and a new purpose. We see it if you jump down to verse 21. Jesus ends by saying, And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. He had this whole new purpose of going to be a missionary to reach unreached people who had never heard. People who were formerly unclean, unacceptable, unwanted, unwelcomed in his house. He went to embrace them and to tell them about the love of Jesus. So, uh, I, I want to read just in, in its entirety uh, the whole reason why Paul was called to do this by Christ through the First Timothy 1 context uh, where he talks about being a chief of sinners. So let's read uh, just this together. I'm going to read it and you follow along. Paul says this. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, that is Christ Jesus our Lord, because he has judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. So he's celebrating that story for his life. He says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, insolent opponent, I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in an unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Pay attention. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That section of his letter to Timothy explains why God would take a wretch like him or like me or like you and why it's significant to to articulate the depth of our sin, the depth of our struggle, the depth of our need, and display where God met us in that, in our disobedience, in our struggle, in our shame, and in our suffering, that it might magnify his mercy, that he might choose to meet us and to love us. And like the woman at the well, we can say with the testimony, come and meet a man who knows everything I've ever done, and he still loves me. Fully seen and fully loved. Now, real quick, as we close, I want to try to give you a a, a quick way to summarize this and to display it. And I hope it works this week. Um, But here's the deal. This is how it maps out. In verses 1 to 3, we have a story for our life. Is it showing up there? A story for our life. And that is where we're from. It was Paul's uh, 
uh, story that he told about his education and his pedigree. And that leads Paul into the second step. And that second step is talking about the, the substance of our need with specificity. What are our sin struggles and our sufferings? What are the ways in which, uh, the worst ways that we've coped with life? The, the addictions, the, the prisons that we've been in, even the suffering that's happened to us. I mean, as a cancer survivor, I can't tell you how encouraged I was by a guy named Will Carter who stewarded his struggle with cancer in the name of Jesus to give me healing and hope. As someone who's trying to be sanctified and walk with Christ, to be honest, I can't tell you how empowered I am like men like Dr. Fred Brown in our congregation, uh, whose story will change your life if you hear it, when he's honest with the depth of his sin. Like when we articulate our worst ways, it highlights this climactic encounter. Oh man, look at that. How does this work? How do these pins work? Unbelievable. Well, so anyway, it's supposed to come down. <laughs> and then there's a circle that's dri- drawn on there. I mean, unreal. This technology drives me crazy. You're, I'm done with you. I'm done. <laughs> so it's like climactic encounter with Christ where Jesus meets us personally. And he sends us to a new people and a new paradigm, a new practice with a whole new purpose. And wherever you are now, wherever you are placed, if you know Christ and you have a new identity as a child of God, a new creation in Christ, born again by his grace, signified by the waters of baptism, that you might be a minister of reconciliation, the people you work with, the people in your neighborhood, your family that doesn't know Christ, your friends that are in your class, those that are on your team. That's the mission field God's put you in. That you might steward your story, and unlike this violin that doesn't need to be refurbished to play music because it tells a story of my family, God has refurbished you, and through you, he wants to play music, the music of his redemption that leads to the song of his salvation that we will sing with every tribe, every tongue, and every nation, that salvation belongs to the Lord. Now you say, Mitchell, how can I be sure of his love? Well, here's how we can be sure of it. That it was the night that Jesus was betrayed. He was betrayed so that you could be welcomed he took bread, and he, after giving thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And friends... Our king, our bridegroom, our lover, he will come again. We're going to pray and ask the Lord to set these elements apart. And as we do, it's All Saints Sunday. And one of the greatest ways we can claim the surety of God's promises is by remembering those who we have loved, friends, family, who have gone before us, that those who died in Christ live forever. So we're going to just have a moment of silence for us to claim the promises of Jesus in our grief uh, for those in our FPC family that have gone to be with the Lord. And then I will continue to pray and set these elements apart. If the Spirit puts anybody's name on your heart uh, who's not on this list, please lift them up. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the reality of your promises that you rose from the grave so that all who die in you 
will live forever. We thank you, Lord, that our family, that our friends, that our neighbors, the people that have been in our Sunday school classes, the people who we saw around our neighborhood, the people we've known for years, those who die in you, Lord, we thank you that they're alive forever with you. And we thank you, Lord, that we can know the surety of your promises because you yourself rose from the grave. And you offer the surety of these promises to all who have a historic, personal, and climactic encounter with you and put their faith in you. And we ask, Lord, that you'd set these elements apart from their common and ordinary purpose and that you would use them to nourish us with your grace. We pray that you would, in our places of death, help us to feast on life. In our places of hopelessness, help us to feast on your hope, your promises. In our places of sin, may we feast on your forgiveness. In our places of death, may we feast on your life. And that you might cultivate in us by the power of your spirit a holiness that is like your son. Lord, we know that Jesus is locally present at the right hand of the Father. We ask for your Holy Spirit now to meet us to this meal. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.